we're much more conscious and we're much more cognizant of hiring people that are member obsessed. One, because that's better for our members, but two, because those people tend to stay with us longer and they tend to perform better. Hello, and welcome to The Talent Blueprint, your guide to building a talent-first company. Today's episode features an interview with Christopher Schreik, Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer at Sam's Club. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for companies to deliver more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce using industry-leading AI. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Talent Blueprint. I'm your host, Salt and Sidov, and today I am super excited to welcome Christopher, the Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer at Sam's Club. Thank you so much for joining us. Excited to be here, Salt, and thanks for the invitation. You're in charge of HR at Sam's Club, an organization with close to 100,000 associates, over 600 locations, 74 billion in net revenue, a lot going on across an organization that size. I'd love to understand a little bit about your talent. Your passion is identifying and attracting top talent. How do you go about that? So I probably think a bit about the attracting first and then the identifying. I feel like when it comes to attracting talent, probably the first thing that I really think about is our employee value proposition, which to me is pretty much just a thesis statement of why somebody should work for your company and what it's going to be like when they're there. feel like a company that is very well connected. Relationships really matter. So innovation, really important. A company where you truly can grow your career. I mean, three quarters of the folks that are managers today started as hourly. And I think it's a company where associates have confidence in Sam's Club itself in terms of where we are, where we're going. Part two for me is just being able to communicate that value proposition in a way that makes sense. That's going to be pretty different from a frontline perspective. So if you're on the frontline, confidence may be about a stable paycheck and the company doing what it says it's going to do. Whereas if you're a middle or senior manager, confidence is probably a little bit more about the company doing what it says, but also really believing in that growth, that strategy, et cetera. So have a value proposition um, that is aspirational and realistic, be able to communicate it. Thirdly, you can come on to how do you really go about then identifying that right type of talent? Think about identification. I know that all of the research says that interviews, especially unstructured ones, are pretty abysmal ways to go about hiring in terms of confirmation bias, bad for diversity, bad for introverts. So we really try to mitigate this with different interview certifications that we're starting to require for hiring managers. So we've got some robust process to ensure the accuracy and the objectivity of the data we collect through structured interviews leads us to better hiring decisions and better assessments in terms of culture fit. We do use a lot of assessment data so that we can ensure we're making data-driven decisions about the hires that are coming into the company, but we're trying to really assess for retention and performance. And depending on the level, it's, you know, if you're frontline, it's probably some basic cognitive ability, basic preferences and experiences, and a bit of situational judgment. If we're hiring in an executive, we're going to layer on things like personality, some detailed business simulations, et cetera. So again, if I kind of step all the way back, have an associate value proposition that resonates, communicate it, and use some assessments and data to identify that talent and complementing it with interviews. I saw there was a post you made about looking at the World Economic Forum and their top 10 skills for the future. How have you tried to make some objective decisions around what are the core things that we're looking for in the potential of the talent we're attracting? And what are the core things we're looking to develop in that very focused promotion program? If you were to look at the skill sets that they were talking about in 2000, it was really about fundamentally management, 
leadership, collaboration, et cetera. If you look at that list in 2010, it's kind of overrun with these STEM skill sets. So science, technology, engineering, math, analytics, all of these things. And if you look at it today, or I think the latest one was from 2020, it's almost a bit of a reversion in some ways to what you would have seen 20 years ago. And I think that really informs kind of the way we think about assessments. We will look for people that are technically proficient and have experience in relevant areas for what we're trying to hire for. And a lot of ways you can train and develop on those things. I think the harder things to train and develop on is being a manager being a leader? Can you motivate? Do you have the ability to truly collaborate, to influence, to build coalitions? So it's more of that core leadership profile that becomes the real thing we're assessing for, probably less so than is this engineer going to be technically proficient? I mean, you can tease a lot of those things out in terms of a good structured interview, but that's probably the bifurcation in terms of how we really think about it, Sultan. It makes a lot of sense and super relevant to the next segment we're going to dig into, which is building talent first organizations. You've touched on some of those principles about how you see it, both from the employee value proposition and the components of building for leadership profiles. When you first started at Sam's Club, what was the biggest opportunity you saw towards moving to these types of directions and this kind of talent-first organization? The first was really from an HR or a people side, was getting the right people team in place. So when I joined SAMS, I felt like that the HR talent was good and there was a foundation to build on, but I didn't think we had enough of it. And the talent we did have was pretty limited in its experience outside of SAMS. We spent a lot of time making investments in that people organization in terms of the field org, supply chain, centers of expertise, including in learning and leadership, talent acquisition, et cetera. And then the second part was really trying to shift the makeup and the composition of that team to one that had much more diverse experience. So part of that was done by bringing some talent from Walmart. And part of that was done by just going to the market and making senior hires from companies that I think are quite strong in terms of HR, like Nike, uh, P&G, CVS, J&J, Amazon, et cetera. And I think that mix of leaders and perspectives of folks that know Sam's in the context, folks that know broader Walmart and folks that have expertise outside, it really helped us to elevate the capability of the function so that we could be better talent stewards. But that was, I think, one big opportunity we had. The second big opportunity was focused on fixing basic things in terms of associate experience, especially on the front line. I think it had been a while since we'd really asked, are the processes we have simple? Are they digital? Can you complete them in as few steps as possible? Are they designed with business needs in mind? When I got here, it could take us upwards of three weeks to hire a new associate on the front line, which was probably really frustrating for that applicant. It was really frustrating for the business. And honestly, it was really frustrating for me. A lot of work has gone into not only digitizing, but rethinking what that process is. So now somebody comes in, they're the right person, they're hired basically in 24 hours, and we can probably hire anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 associates every two weeks. So for me, it's not about coming in with the big grand strategy. It's about coming in, getting the basic things in place so that you're building the credibility of the function to do more of those strategic things and components that you talked about. What are the inner workings at Sam's Club that might be different versus other club style organizations? I think there's two things that differentiate Sam's, at least in my opinion and experience. The first really is the caliber of the people. And maybe the example I would give is when I was considering joining Sam's, I felt like I just kept encountering people that had this remarkable combination of they were really smart, 
They were really driven and they were really humble. And I've worked in and with a lot of other organizations that probably had strengths in one or more of those areas, but never all three and never with that degree of humility that you find in Sam's. And I think that's the secret sauce. So I think the second piece is we have fundamentally one KPI that you can boil the entire business down to, which is essentially how satisfied are our members? How happy are they to shop at Sam's? They paid it for the privilege to do it. This concept of a flywheel that we use a lot was from an old Jim Collins book. There's these combination of elements in a business that if you can align them over time, they build on each other, they gain momentum, and they create kind of this virtuous cycle for the company. And at Sam's, the top of that flywheel, and really the one KPI that matters above all others is, are our members happy here? which means we have to be member obsessed. People pay for the privilege to shop with us. So everything starts with being member obsessed. If you are member obsessed, then you ensure that you have the right assortment and the right quality of items for your members. If you have the right assortment and the right quality, you're gonna generate demand and you're able to invest back in price to make sure that not only you have good quality, good assortment, but you're leading in terms of price. When you do that, you create more demand and you've got to be able to provide avenues for people to be able to shop when, where, and how they want. Sales grows, membership income grows, and then you can invest back in your associates in terms of wages, in terms of tools, in terms of resources, so that your associates, those 100,000 people that are on the floor of our clubs every day, so that they can be member obsessed and taking care of your member and you're right back to the top of the flywheel. It's really interesting how deeply connected the associate skill set and the way you think about the development is to your member obsession. What are some of the ways that you create that program for associates, ensuring that you are thinking about them being happy, them thriving, them growing and, do, and creating that reinvestment side of the flywheel? First is I think we've got a pretty robust engagement survey and we really closely monitor several things. The ultimate measure of employee happiness, the employee NPS score, which is essentially how likely are you to recommend Sam's as a place to work to a friend or family member? We really pay attention to that. The second thing we look at is we pay a lot of attention to turnover. If you're thriving, if you're growing, you don't usually leave. I won't give specifics on our turnover numbers, but in the US retail turnover, at least according to the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, hovers about 60, 65. And we feel very good about how we compare there. And we probably feel even better if you adjust that turnover once you get an associate past the, the 90 day mark. For our office roles, the story's about the same. National turnover is probably about 20%. Thirdly, is we pay attention to promotions too, right? You talked about the number of folks that we're promoting through the org in an average year. I mentioned earlier about 75% of managers began as hourly associates. And we're really proud of that. And if I just think about the front line, that number of promotions from hourly to salaried, that's up at least 100% over the course of the last three years. And then finally, beyond engagement, beyond turnover, beyond promotions, there's other KPIs we pay attention to as well. So I think if you've got people that are happy and thriving and growing, our number of full-time associates, I expect that ratio to be much higher than our number of part-time associates, which it is. Um, and... I expect to see clubs and supply chain sites that are simply more productive. And we've seen probably double digit increases in terms of our productivity over the course of the last two years. Hearing you describe the components of being really focused on the lead indicators of turnover, that engagement, that energy, that optimism, you have some pretty impressive predictability between those lead indicators that you're focusing on. And if you had to break out some of the key things that mean that you, you don't have major challenges with hiring, what would you attribute that to? 
I think it's a confluence of factors. You can easily find the roles we have. You can apply for them. You come in, we like you, you have an offer and you're done within 24 hours. So the process is much better for associates and it's much better for managers in the clubs. That cannot be underestimated. The second reason is we've invested a lot of money in wages over the course of the last three plus years. So if I think about our average pay rate, we've gone from paying about $13.50 an hour on average to $17.50 an hour on average. We don't have a role in Sam's Club in the US that starts less than $15 an hour. Um, and we have hourly associates earning upwards of $32, $33, $34 an hour. I think the third reason is people think more about Sam's as a place they can come and have a career, not simply a place where they have a retail job. And I think a lot of that is due to we have this Live Better You program that we share with Walmart in terms of providing access to free education in terms of obtaining a college degree, an associate's degree, a high school degree, relevant certifications. We've got core development programs. So for example, getting someone from a team lead to an assistant club manager, we have this MIT program, which really takes people through the basics of what it means to be an assistant club manager. And at the end of that eight weeks, you are an assistant club manager. And then the last piece, we focus on the areas we have challenges. When you have 600 clubs and 20 plus supply chain sites, not every area of the country, not every club is created equal, but we focus on those 20, 30, 40 clubs where we know we're 10, 15 under in terms of headcount. So if we've got a club where we're having issues, we run very targeted hiring events there. We have local ads. You've got QR codes on the TVs when you come into Sam's Club. And we're interviewing dozens, sometimes hundreds of candidates in a day to complete and fill those gaps as soon as we can. So I think it really is that confluence of have an easy process. Don't let wages be a barrier and invest there. Give people a belief that Sam's is a place you can have a career and then just know where you're not fully staffed and be really focused on those areas. And I think those four things have been a big reason for our success in my mind, Sultan. When it comes to the movement from hourly to full-time, the fact that 75% of full-time employees started as hourly, what's driven that? Has that always been such a high ratio? Is that something that's expanded over time? I don't think it's always been such a high ratio. Um... I also think there's a few things that have driven it. I think one is if I flash back to where we were, you know, probably a little more than three years ago, we've really broadened the roles in SAMs. So again, if I use a frontline example, we don't have a role that is called cashier, for example. So that cashier that's working the register, they also work the membership desk. They also do entry greeting. They also do exit greeting. And when needed, they're working other parts of the club too. So everybody is getting a far broader experience and far broader exposure kind of to the, to the totality of the work that's really going on in the clubs. I think that is, that's a big part of it. I think the second piece is what I talked about earlier in terms of this investment and development of the Live Better You program, the MIT program, even a new program we put into place this year in terms of manager quality, which is really for all field associates from hourly roles to management roles, giving them skills in terms of how to identify, how to develop, how to manage, and how to reward talent. So it's this confluence of formal education. It's this confluence of what do you need to know for a specific job you aspire to, and basic leadership and managerial skills that everyone can have a foundation of. And then I think the final piece is 
I think we're just hiring better associates. And a lot of that is due to those assessments that we've had and put into place of we're much more conscious and we're much more cognizant of hiring people that are member obsessed. One, because that's better for our members, but two, because those people tend to stay with us longer and they tend to perform better. And that to me is, I think, the combination of broader roles, number one, invest in development, number two, give them a clear path, number three, and number four, just hire better people. And I think when you do all of those things kind of in in totality, that to me is probably the former and the current drivers of that success, as you talked about, of getting people, you know, 75% of managers that, that started as hourly. The part you spoke about with opportunities across different roles and lateral moves and internal mobility and access raises a, a question of how you think about that side of equal opportunity and equal access and DNI within your hiring process and your internal decisions. How does that affect your views on hiring the right talent and building the right organization? I think DEI has a huge impact on decision making because we want to and we aspire to look like the US working population across all levels of the organization. On the other hand, 100% of the time, we will always hire or appoint the best candidate. What I think my job is when it comes to DEI is being really clear of where we truly have those gaps that we know we need to be to be focused on in terms of kind of broken rungs, if that's from hourly to salaried or manager to director or whatever the case may be. I think secondly is then making sure that there's kind of discrete plans and programs in place that is worked through with the business to substantively and systematically address where we have those gaps, if that's around awareness or hiring practices or sources of talent or giving better feedback, whatever the case may be, and then making sure that those work streams really, that they build on each other. So in general, it's about everything working together, integrating DEI into the talent practices and the way we run the business. It is not, and it cannot be a separate initiative. And if you do that, then you are able to say, we are making progress towards the aspiration and we are not compromising on always making the best hire, the best the best appointment. I couldn't agree with more about that mindset of having to think holistically about the problem. And I think it's refreshing to see more organizations start thinking about those gaps from the perspective of what is diversity? Is it, how do we look at neurodiversity? The other is, what are the things across our business that allow for that to be a successful way of working to your point around hiring the right talent? It sounds like you have fewer gaps and challenges in the hiring process or in retention than many businesses are facing across the world. You have identified a couple of areas where you're trying to make thoughtful investments when it comes to how do you assess and interview the right talent, when it comes to how do you get more thoughtful on the parameters that you're using to promote people And you spoke earlier about reverting back to the sort of 2000 terms of leadership skills. How are you thinking about the biggest gaps that are ahead of you? And how are you trying to forecast which of those things are solvable? The first thing I would say in terms of just gap areas, we have a pure quantitative and just a mathematical exercise, which is pretty straightforward. So in terms of being able to just run the business, we know or have a very good idea of how many associates we think we need given revenue growth, given productivity assumptions, et cetera. We also know exactly how many associates we have by level, by function, by location. Then what we would do is then we take a look at how many people are we hiring? How many people are we promoting? How many people are we losing? Just a super basic talent flow map. And then based on that, we can have a really good understanding of in a specific area, if we continue hiring, we continue promoting, we continue losing people at the same rates, will we have enough of the right type of talent? Yes or no. And if no, 
How big is that gap? And what is it we want to do about it? So I think it's really about understanding what is the business strategy and what are the key initiatives? What is that talent and capability that we have today? And have we and how can we allocate those resources against areas of the highest priority, which is probably some combination of what's really urgent, what's really strategically important, what's going to help the P&L this year, et cetera. And then we know, well, if these are the gaps we have, what can we do? And now we get to make the decisions in terms of how we're going to fill those gaps in terms of reallocating existing resource. Maybe it is we need to ramp up hiring. Maybe it is that we need to be borrowing talent using consultancies or third parties or whatever the case may be. Maybe it is that we need to be doing a lot more work and rigor in terms of developing people and enhancing their skill set to grow up. Or maybe there's some things we say, look, we know that's a gap but it's not actually strategically important, so we're not going to worry about it. But I think it's the confluence of understanding, again, where do you want to be? How many resources do you think you need prioritized against which key initiatives? Are you going to be in a good place if you keep hiring, promoting, and losing at the same rate? And if not, how do you build? How do you buy? How do you borrow? talent to be able to get there. So I suspect that the way we look at that is probably not radically different than a lot of other organizations, but I think it's about maintaining that rigor and keeping it in a pretty simple framework that not only an HR function is going to understand, but the business is going to understand is going to make sense to them as well. I speak to dozens of CHROs and talent leaders every month on these subject topics. And right now, there tend to be three themes that come up universally, attraction problems, retention problems, and workforce planning problems. And the workforce planning side, which is what you're referring to in terms of build, borrow, buy, and demand planning, where do you feel in that process of how your build, borrow, buy decisions are evolving and that you're starting to look at things differently or where you're starting to make perhaps new investments or approaches? A couple of things I would say. I think on the front line, we have grown our revenue by double digits, 10% for each of the last 10 quarters. I think when I look in the field, if you look at our headcount over time, it's always hovered kind of 95,000, right? To give a concrete example, I see this every time I'm in clubs. I'll be walking kind of the front of the club where the registers are. And there will inevitably, there will always be a line at the belted register with a cashier. I'll ask those people, have you tried scan and go? Because you can just scan your items on your phone, swipe at the bottom with a credit card and walk out and never wait in a line. They will always say to me, but I want to make sure I protect that cashier's job because you guys are getting rid of those jobs. And unfailingly, I will always respond, we're not getting rid of those jobs. That is what has enabled us to do curbside pickup. That's why we can ship products from clubs. We're simply reallocating it. But there's not a real belief in that. But I think that's a key piece for us is, can we continue to grow by advancing investments in tech, by advancing investments in product in terms of member and associate tools and give people candidly better jobs inside of the club. So that's a piece we invest a lot in that tech and product piece. That's a big enabler for us. The broader piece I would say when it comes to capability and kind of those corporate function jobs is if proportionally we continue to have more resources in terms of tech and product you are able to automate away the things that nobody wants to do in their job. So if I'm a merchant, for example, I don't want to be spending time keying in details about item files. I don't pay people for that. It's a total waste of their time. I want to be obsessed with finding great items that members are going to love. But I feel like that capability of that is a different mindset for a merchant and that's a different capability or more of a capability we need at that tech and product level. Same thing in terms of being a manager. And then I think the last thing I would say, Sultan, is 
If you build that, not just workforce plan, but I would describe as a strategic workforce plan well, it helps you to understand these really are the organizational capabilities where I've got to be strong or that are going to differentiate me. When you think about that broader theme of putting the human back in human resources, what are some learnings you've had along the way on how to put the human back into HR? So I think I would contextualize this and maybe this is overly personalized, but I think it's I think it's broadly true. So for me, I've been really fortunate in my career and, and honestly, really my life that I've been able to live and, um, and work and travel, I mean, all over the world. I mean, I've lived in five countries, consulting, worked in travel, worked in consumer goods, worked in retail. And in my experience, I think that there is, from, when you talk about that human element, there is so much more that unites people than divides people. They want health, they want happiness, they want purpose in their life, and they want a better life for their families and kind of their kids specifically. I cannot think of an exception to those things. I think a lot about how well SAMs are doing in terms of helping people be healthier in terms of mental well-being, physical well-being, financial well-being. I think a lot about how we're creating environments where people want to be, where they're happy and engaged. I think about how we put people in positions where not that the company can find purpose for them, but where they can find their own purpose in terms of the work and the things they're doing. And we're clear about the purpose that we have as an organization. Are we paying people well? Are we providing that opportunity and flexibility so they can give their families a better life? Like Those are big questions. But if you're not going to think about those as a people or an HR leader, honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure what more important things you're going to be thinking about. I mean, yes, strategic workforce plans, that's all really great. But if you're not doing these things, I don't know. I love it. Well, this takes us nicely to our final segment, The Future of Talent. If we think about being captive to outcomes and where the future holds and thinking about some of those gradual versus sudden changes and fast forward five years from now, what do you think are the biggest things that will have changed in the world of talent? So I think the first piece is the focus on fairness, equity, and inclusion, I think is going to be an incredible acceleration. I think the demands of associates and employees in terms of information transparency, in terms of simple things like disclosure of pay ranges, disclosure of compensation, I think a lot of this is going to be made far, far more public. The demography and those that are entering the workforce, they are way more diverse it's especially true of women. I mean, in the U.S., we make up 70% of valedictorians. Are you, we are going to have to get our acts together. And that younger generation, like they are more liberal and they've got far higher expectations of corporations. So this acceleration of kind of fairness, equity, and inclusion, I think, is one really clear thing. The second thing I would say is I think wellness is going to be kind of the next frontier in terms of, uh, in terms of a KPI. So if I look at the last three years... I mean, people have gone through a lot in terms of COVID and returning to work and societal upheaval and just personal challenges in their own lives. We talk a lot about mental and physical and financial well-being, but we're going to have to get much better and clearer in terms of really how do we identify and measure this. I don't know if that's uptake on offerings. I don't know if that's self-reported outcome measures. Associates that are mentally, physically, and financially well they are going to perform better and stay with companies longer. So I think this wellness is a KPI. I feel like there's really something there. Flexibility and the impact of that. Flexibility, it already is and will continue to be a total hygiene factor. Flexibility of the, for the professional workforce is going to be what compensation is for the frontline workforce. Is if you don't have it, you're not in the game. LinkedIn published some research that talked about 20% of their postings 
were for roles with a flexible work location. And that 20% of postings took up 50% of all of the applications that were made on the site. And those numbers are only going to increase. So I think what that means is geography is going to recede as a factor for where most people work. Companies that are leaning into this, satellite offices, et cetera, are going to be okay. But companies that aren't, they're really going to be in trouble. And the impact of that is great resignation, great reassessment, whatever you want to call it. That's here to stay because the best talent is going to have more options than ever before. And it's going to be a direct result of this component of flexibility. And then the last thing is, I lived in Dubai and in the United Arab Emirates for you know many years ago. So I kind of pay attention to what they're doing there. And I feel like there's this other element of, we may start to see short work weeks just as a way to truly compete for talent and avoiding this never-ending cycle of compensation. So in, in Dubai, for example, they cut the work week to four and a half days. Now, in the Middle East, that's due to so you can still go to the mosque on Friday afternoons. But I don't think they're going to be alone in this. And I'm wondering if shorter work weeks is something that we're going to start to see as kind of an emerging trend in companies as the next frontier of this component of flexibility. So I, I think for me, fairness, equity, and inclusion, wellness is a KPI, the impact of flexibility becoming a hygiene factor. And I just wonder, you know, kind of number four, are we going to see more of this condensed, consolidated work weeks as a way to provide flexibility and to avoid the never-ending ladder of increasing compensation pressures? I, I couldn't agree more. And on that last one, we're already riding the train of shorter weeks. We recently rolled out a policy of having the first Friday off every month and creating a development day off every month as well. And I agree with you. Wellness and centricity of that is definitely becoming a new KPI. Well, Christopher, this has been enlightening. And thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thanks for your time, Sultan. I appreciate it. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for enterprises to drive more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce with industry-leading AI. Beamery optimizes every step of the talent lifecycle, from sourcing and identifying talent with the right skills and potential, to building and marketing your employment brand, creating an internal talent marketplace, and mobilizing your employees through getting the reporting and talent insights that you need to make better decisions about your workforce. Are you ready to unlock your talent? Learn more at Beamery.com.